We have no intention of building fences. We want to build a bigger table and invite people to it. And not only to the fellowship of this church, but an invitation into the family of God. Once you read it, once you see it, you see it all through the Bible, including in the very last book of the Bible in Revelation. Life in the family of God is pictured by feasting, by sitting together and enjoying one another, in doing what for months we missed so much in the early brutal days of the pandemic when we were all locked in. We're family. And this morning, this is a Sunday to make sure. The Bible says to examine yourself and be sure that you're in the faith. I'd like you, however long you've followed Christ, however long you've attended church, whatever you think you know about the Bible, however much you actually know about the Bible, even if you have an advanced degree in biblical studies, I'd like you this morning to listen carefully to Jesus and to the closest of His apostles, the Apostle John. They spoke in language that was so clear it was offensive. Many times as a preacher, I know I've failed because I get text messages and emails and conversations after the sermon asking me what I meant. And periodically, somebody will thank me for a sermon I preached and tell me what blessed them about it. And I know from my memory and also looking at my notes that they heard something I never said. (laughs) But if what blessed them is still biblical, I just nod wisely and say, well, praise the Lord. I'm glad you were helped by that. I didn't say it. Somebody said it, and they were right, so praise the Lord for that. Jesus, the Apostle John, all of the apostles never suffered from that predicament. They were so clear, they routinely tried to kill Jesus as soon as He was done speaking. This Sunday is meant to be a Sunday like that, that you would sit with Jesus, listen to Him, ask yourself if you really are in the faith. It's not a trivial question, and it's not a question that is meant to bring any man-made or religious pressure upon anyone. My pastor, my predecessor here and the senior pastor of this church used to say that there are going to be two surprises in heaven, those who are there and those who are not, because the grace of God really is wide and deep enough to reach anybody. But regardless of its availability, there will be some in the shadow of a pulpit or the steeple of a church who will go their whole lives thinking they're in the faith, thinking they're at peace with God, thinking they know Jesus, not knowing that they don't know Him at all. So this Sunday is a Sunday to make sure. I'm going to speak, first of all, to those who may not be sure. I'm going to speak to all of you with the invitation to make sure. And right at the end, If you're quite certain of your faith in Christ, I'm going to give you three ways to think about this first seat at the table for the first person that's been invited, who is the unbeliever. We'll be in the Gospel of John. We'll be listening to Jesus and to His closest apostle, the Apostle John. Let's pray before we do. Lord, I thank You for our time together. I thank You for Linda and her faith in You. Thank You for her baptism. Thank You for those who will be baptized next. I thank You in advance, Lord, for those who may, I don't know, may decide that this morning they will make the shocking discovery that they have not really trusted You. They've been going to church 
They know about you. They may even have fond affection for you, but they have never truly turned from their sin and placed all their trust in you. I pray, God, for however many people come to church this morning, if any one of us is in that condition, that this would be the Sunday we make sure. I pray it, Jesus, in your name, for your glory, our good. Amen. The table is a spiritual picture found across the pages of the Bible itself, which pictures life in the family of God. We all begin as unbelievers. Jesus said, you must be born again. That means that we are infants, newborns in the family of God, as alive as anyone else, but just brand new in the family. Then we become children. If we continue to progress, though many Christians, you'll, I'll show you later in the Bible, the pastor's preaching will show you in the Bible, that many get stuck there and live their entire lives as children. And what a tragedy that is when someone who has the capacity to grow up refuses to do so. Nobody who has the capacity physically to develop can help much from doing so if they're given the appropriate conditions, if they're given sufficient food and sleep. Many Christians having spiritual DNA to make them look before their death very much like Jesus choose instead childishness and are stuck there for the rest of their earthly lives. But if children keep developing, they become young adults, and for the first time in their lives, they start thinking seriously about others and their purpose. They want to make a mark on the world. They discover who they are, and they spend the rest of their lives pursuing what God has gifted them to do, obeying His instructions. And finally, and we have far too few of these in Christianity, we always have, because it's the last season, some Christians continue to develop until they become parents and reproduce the life of Jesus in the lives of others. We all begin as unbelievers. This is the first chair and the only one that is fatal. And already, I know I'm speaking to a church, and I know I'm speaking to a loving church, but if it's your first time in church, or you're skeptical of church, and I'm routinely surprised, as often as I've heard it, how many people are skeptical of church, and particularly skeptical of pastors, Years ago, a guy in that lobby right out there said, I don't like pastors very much. And I said, well, I don't either. (laughs) And I know more of them than you do, believe me. You've got a point. (laughs) But just in telling a congregation as friendly and loving as easily as you laugh that there is something called an unbelieving chair and that that chair is fatal, that already puts distance between the person who bears that message and the person who hears it. Here's the biblical definition of the unbeliever. The unbeliever is welcoming God's family, but contrary to memes, contrary to phrases, contrary to commonly held beliefs splashed all across the internet and in casual conversation, the unbeliever is welcoming God's family, but is not yet there. Made by God, loved by God, but not yet God's child, God's son or God's daughter for one simple reason. The unbeliever does not believe Jesus. That's the difference. 
You can believe a great deal in Jesus. We've taken a perfectly good and biblical phrase and say, I believe in Jesus, but all we mean in many cases is, I believe there was a historical figure called Jesus who had some good ideas and some good things to share with us. And if everybody adopted his values, no doubt the world would be a better place. Jesus said, as I'm going to show you, far more than that. Jesus did not preach values. He preached himself. Jesus has values. Jesus has ethics, but they depend and rest upon who he is. And no one who said the things that Jesus said in plain sight of everybody deserves to be believed or trusted or loved unless he was absolutely right. Because only a deranged person or a manipulative psychopath would say the sorts of things that Jesus said unless they were true. And if they were true, as I heard an unbelieving radio host raised in Judaism say, if Jesus is right, I should follow him. I just don't believe he is. And that is the condition of many. So let's find out. When I say that that person is not yet in God's family because they do not believe Jesus, I'm only quoting Jesus. In John chapter 3, a religious man came to Jesus. His name was Nicodemus. And John chapter 3, from the closest of Jesus' disciples, that's the hallmark of John's gospel. He gives you private interviews that none of the other gospel writers mention. John gives you um, sometimes Jesus' internal thoughts, conversations, even controversies that Jesus had with individuals that no one else records for us in the Bible. John 3 says that there was a man named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, and that this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, term of respect, trusted teacher, one who knows the way of God, we know that God is with you because no one can do these signs, these miracles that you do, unless God is with him. Now, that's a pretty great way to say hello to somebody. A title of respected religious trust an acknowledgement that the miracles Jesus were working clearly had to be from God because no ordinary man could do them unless God's favor rested on him. And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You don't need to, but you could look it up. After that compliment, after that lead-in, this is what Jesus said to Nicodemus. He didn't say thank you. He didn't say you're on the right track. He gave this expert in the Hebrew Scriptures a jolting revelation. Unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You acknowledge that I come from God? Let me tell you, you don't know anything about God, and you never will unless you are born again. And if you've read the rest of the story, how did Nicodemus take it? Not with rebellion, but at least ignorance. He said, I'm a grown man. Can I go back into my mother's womb? What on earth are you talking about? Why born again? That word picture exists for a reason, and it's the most humbling thing in the world because I am a born person speaking to born people, and you didn't have a thing to do with it. 
Your mother and father decided you would be here, right? Do you remember being consulted? <laughs> you remember the family meeting when they decided when it might be best to have a family? When you would arrive? No. Had nothing to do with you, and that is the point. Unless you're born again, unless you have a life entirely different from the one you have now, unless you have a whole new life that doesn't depend on you, you cannot be in the kingdom of God. Notice the drama. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You'll have nothing to do, Nicodemus, with the life of God you think you know of and the life of God you preach to others unless you start over from birth. You'll have nothing ever again to do with God. You don't know God now, and you won't know him ever unless you're born again. That's why Nicodemus pushed back so hard. You can read the controversy later. Jesus said to him, you're a teacher? You don't know these things? How hopeless Nicodemus' students must have been if their leader didn't know what Jesus, the Son of God, was talking about. Years later, John the Apostle would write this. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. That's so clear a child can understand it. I know that because I was a child when I first heard it. Would you read the Bible with me, 1 John chapter 5, verse 11, right off the screen or right off the notes? What's the Bible say? This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. This is our message, John says. John, who will suffer terribly, who will, according to church history, it's not found in Scripture. They tried to martyr John too. He miraculously survived through a very painful ordeal. This is our testimony. This is our message. This is the message we won't back down from. This is the message we will die for because we know in death we will have life. We will not, as John said earlier in another part of Scripture, along with Peter, Peter speaking, say we cannot stop talking about the things we've seen and heard. We just can't. And this is the testimony that God gave us what kind of life? eternal life, life that starts now and lasts forever. And that's one thing I need you to know and one thing you might need to consider, whether you actually know Jesus when you trust Jesus as your Savior, eternal life begins at that moment. It's not heaven someday alone. It is eternal life right now. I'm not yet the person I want to be. I'm certainly not the person that Jesus wants me to be, but I have the eternal life of Jesus right now, and He has made all the difference. He's carried my burdens. He's given me guidance. He's forgiven my sins. He assures me of His love and His gentle, lowly spirit that invites me to come and learn from Him. That eternal life starts now, and it's very simple. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. How did he do that? How can that be? This life is in his son. Jesus said it clearly. John 14, verse 6. 
One of the most well-known and least considered verses in the entire Bible. The setting is this. Jesus is about to die. He is speaking to his disciples for the last time. Judas the traitor has gone out from them. He's gone out into a night that John simply describes as dark. An actual historical and also literary picture of how dark that night was that someone who had been with Jesus perhaps for about two years is now going to seek the man who, men who will come with weapons and torches to kill him. On his way to the cross, speaking to the eleven who remain, Jesus said this, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And Jesus either deserves to be loved and believed and trusted or can be safely rejected as a lunatic. Because who else could dare to say something like that unless they were deranged or evil, unless they were speaking the truth? Those are your three, those are your three choices. Famously recorded by C.S. Lewis as lunatic liar, or Lord. That's it. Take the words of Jesus and put them in the mouth of anyone else you've ever known or read about that you admire in history. Try it. Imagine a great leader, a leader of humanity, someone who has blessed the world, saying, I am the way. I personally am the truth. I don't know life. I am life. What's more, no one comes to God, who I call my Father, except through me. If you want to know the way, the truth, and the life, you have to come through me. Do those words fit in the mouth of any other historical figure? Not for a moment. Those who have blessed and shaped humanity look like ludicrous fools saying things like this. Jesus said, I am. And these disciples, these remaining 11, to their credit, right before they ran for their lives, finally came to a clear understanding of who he was and welcomed and accepted him and celebrated him at that moment, Thomas among them. But now they understood what had been so hard for them to believe because it's not natural for men to walk the earth saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So here's the question. Are you 100% sure that you have eternal life? Or are you still working on it? Just sit with the question for a second. If your life depended upon it, and it does. In this pandemic, there's been so much talk about the mortality rate and the illness rate and the severity of the illness. Through careful study, I've arrived at a conclusion. The death rate remains 100%. You may be spared this danger, but you won't be spared all danger. You'll die. I'll die. It's not a matter of if, it's only a matter of when. 
And I'm not trying to scare you. Ah, here we go again. Hellfire and brimstone. Not at all. I'm just reminding you of something that the culture has taken extraordinary measures and spent literally trillions of dollars to get you to forget. This life here, now, in this body is not eternal. Have you noticed? Some of you are so young, you don't think it's true. But look at your baby pictures. See, some of you were ugly when you were four, and you're beautiful now that you're 24. But that development alone should tell you something. It's headed in one direction. It's headed to old age if you're fortunate. It's headed to an untimely and tragic death if you're not. Nobody gets out alive. So the question is, are you entirely 100% sure that you have eternal life or are you still working on it? That's to me, the most important question anybody could ask you. Because people make certain of all kinds of things that won't matter a moment after their own death. You know your ATM pin number? Don't say it. <laughs> enough crime in the streets, enough shenanigans at church without you. <laughs> Muttering your pin number to some perhaps shady person under financial pressure who decides to take advantage. I bet you do, or I bet you know how to find out. I bet you know your passwords or have a password manager or a notebook somewhere cleverly labeled passwords. <laughs> You've made sure of all kinds of things, but not eternal life. For many of you, I'm sure of it. It's a hope-so situation. I know this because when God is working and blessing a few times a month, I'll lead someone to Christ to actual saving, now they're sure, faith in Christ who just hoped so and thought so but didn't know so. It makes all the difference in the world. You can succeed in everything in life. You can buy one of these incredibly, ridiculously expensive overpriced houses in our area. You can pile up the equity. You can fill up the accounts. You can change the generational wealth in your family. You can be revered and esteemed and remembered for a hundred years. You can be remembered for a thousand years. But if you don't have eternal life, this is all you're getting. This is why Jesus said elsewhere, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Jesus, who is life, knows what life is and knows how vain and foolish it is for us to pursue only what this life can offer. Years ago, a well-known pastor wrote a book called Your Best Life Now, and when I saw the title, I thought, I hope not. I hope there's more to it than this, because I've had an amazing life, but I know it won't always be amazing. I know I will lose my loved ones and stand by their graves and mourn for them. Or perhaps they may stand by mine and mourn for me. I know there will be suffering. I know there will be pain. And I am quite certain that there will be death because the Bible warns us the wages of sin is death. 
We cast in vain for every solution, every new president, every new principle, every new maven of technology says, Eureka, we have found it. Now life is going to be amazing. Have you looked around? Physically getting better? Absolutely. More wealth, less hunger, better human conditions in the whole world if you can step out of the current chaos and look at it from a macro view. But here's the death rate, 100%. You better make sure that you have eternal life. You better make sure that you're not just working on it because I have really good news for you. You don't have to work on it. Jesus worked on it for you. Here's the Apostle John again. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Is that clear enough? There it is. I was a kid, and not a good one. I was terrible. How bad? How bad could a kid be? I was the kind of kid who got spanked and spit on my mother as soon as she was done. Never even heard of another child doing that much less all day. My mother would be done when she was physically tired of dealing with me. She would lock herself in the bedroom and cry, afraid of what I might be if I were 14, 24, or 54. And God, by His grace, showed me that that sin in my tiny little mind and heart was actually separating me from him and showing me a guilty person in the presence of a holy God. And as a child, my mother showed me this very verse, and it made all the difference. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may, what John say? That you may know that you have eternal life. Life has a name, it's Jesus. Truth has a name, it's Jesus. The way to God has a name, it's Jesus. Here's Jesus explaining it. Back to Nicodemus. He hit him with this shocking, humbling, upsetting, arguable contention that Nicodemus must be born again. And 13 verses later, Jesus explained himself. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. Notice the word perish. The gospel of Jesus has been reduced, particularly in the United States, and exported to places like Africa and Haiti where people are desperate for a better life on this earth to merely life improvement. Jesus is life coach, not Savior. And it's nonsense. Jesus didn't die on the cross to be your coach. He's not your stockbroker. He's not your advisor. He didn't die to give you a better life on earth. He died to give you eternal life, which begins on earth and continues forever. But what, stand, what stood between me and a young child, as a young child, between me and God was my sin. So, God loved the world so that He gave His only Son so that whoever believes in Him should not perish, will not die in that sin, but instead have eternal life. 
And my mother, God bless her, literally, God bless her, was patient with me that night that I trusted Jesus because twice I told my parents, I understand the Bible's message, I understand I need forgiveness, I'm ready to believe, and twice I sent them back to their bedroom because I refused to pray and confess to Jesus that I needed him. Twice I broke off a child's prayer and said, nothing to forgive me, I'm fine, I'm good. Years later, I read Pilgrim's Progress and saw the picture of Pilgrim with a heavy burden on his back coming to a cross and feeling the burden suddenly loosed and rolling down and falling into a grave, if memory serves, never to be seen again. And the night that I finally submitted my will, the night that Jesus finally broke my will and got me to stop trusting myself and start trusting Him, that night the picture of Pilgrim's Progress made sense because I felt my burden off my back. And I've felt it ever since. There have been ups and downs and all kinds of doubts and all kinds of disobedience on my part But Jesus was right when he said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever, and my mother, God bless her, invited me to put my name there. And that helped my little childlike mind understand that my salvation was offered to the world, but it would do no good whoever does me no good unless it's me who believes in him so that I shall not perish, but instead I will have eternal life. Jesus continues, God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And often in Bible teaching, people edit Jesus and stop reading right there. That's fair. They're still quoting Jesus. But we've learned that context matters, right? Look at the very next verse. Read it with me, in fact. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. That 18th verse makes a difference. I'm not here to condemn the world, Jesus would say. I'm here to save you. But if you will not believe, if you will not trust me, I have terrible news. You're condemned already because you have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. See, that phrase, the only Son of God, that makes all the difference. You can be wrong about politics. You can be wrong about business. You can be wrong about all kinds of worldly pursuits, but Jesus says that being wrong about him makes an eternal difference and spells the difference between life and forgiveness and condemnation in unbelief. And the greatest lie about eternal life is that you can work your way into it. That's why I'm asking you, let me remind you of the question before I finish. Are you 100% sure that Jesus is your Savior, or are you still working on it? If you're still working on it, it won't work. You cannot save yourself. That's why Jesus is called across Scripture a Savior. 
That's why he has the audacity to guarantee his own death by telling people exactly who he is. If you insist on saving yourself, you will be lost. I read a terrible story when I was in Bible college. I've never been able to find the details. Again, Google has failed for once. But it was the story of a fatal fire at a mental hospital where some people perished because in their debilitated psychiatric condition they could not understand what was happening and thought that the firefighters who had gone in to save them were actually there to kill them. And some were found later burned to death in a place where they had hidden. Why am I telling you that story? Because Jesus is the fireman coming into the blazing house that is this world and is your life, saying, I know the way out, follow me. And you have a decision at that moment whether to continue to trust yourself and your own resources and find and fight your own way out and follow him. And no one who has ever followed Jesus has found anything but life. He has and will save everyone who has ever trusted him without exception. We have extraordinary stories from church history of Christians being killed for their faith, singing from the blaze because somehow God miraculously meets them in the moment of death to assure them of eternal life. I've witnessed that myself on a deathbed more than once. Where someone's countenance is entirely changed and it's as if, I can't say for sure, I'm just giving you a personal testimony of things I have witnessed. I don't put them on the level of Scripture, obviously. But I have seen people who clearly were not expecting it relaxed in what looks to me like a vision of the presence of God just before they move from this life into eternal life. I've held the hand of too many dying people to not believe, not only from Scripture, but from personal experience that Jesus is a Savior who actually does give eternal life. But if you insist on saving yourself, you will be lost. You cannot cover your own sin. God must forgive you and give you new life. Don't hide from the fireman who's come to rescue you. Don't try to cover all the guilt, all the shame, all the misdeeds that God has clearly seen for all eternity. Everything you've ever said, done, and thought wrongly, God knows it and sees it. He's God. He sees and knows everything. This universe, intricate, beautiful, in all of its complexity, speaks of his intelligence to make a world like this. And he sees and knows all of you, good and bad. When your thoughts are right, he knows it. When your thoughts are wrong, he knows it. He knows all about you. That's why he sent his son to save you. And the common mistake that we make is comparing ourselves not with God, but with each other. I told somebody the other day, you let me choose the competition, I will always dominate the athletic playing field. Take me to a lower elementary school playground. I will dominate. Those kids will be powerless to contain my speed and power. Don't take me to Huntington Beach High School. Monsters are growing on those fields. But that's what people do morally. You know you're wrong. 
Some of you use all kinds of substances and liquids to cope with how wrong you know you are. God knows. It's okay. God knows. And Jesus did not come to condemn you. He came to save you. Condemnation hangs over you only if you persist in your unbelief, only if you refuse to trust Him. That's why Jesus said a few verses later to Nicodemus, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Snap out of it, Nicodemus. Get your jaw off the floor. Close your mouth, son. You look silly. It's no miracle. You should not be amazed that I told you you must be born again. Surely, Nicodemus, religion has taught you that you're not going to make it because all religion gives you is advice. And the advice is conflicting. I don't know if you've noticed. The five pillars of Islam tell you ways to be pleasing to an inaccessible God. Hinduism tells you that there are an unknown but very large number of gods. And that if you will abase yourself, someday you will be absorbed into nirvana. Most forms of Buddhism don't believe in God at all. They're just a very complex set of ethical systems and rules. Most Americans don't have a religion they can name that identifies with any particular group. We're way too independent. We've got a self-crafted spirituality. Artisan. Handmade. The other day I was by a sandwich shop and it said handcrafted sandwiches and I thought, how else? Robots? What do, you, what do you got in the kitchen back there? I'm pretty sure it's Chad that's making my sandwich. And I got to thinking, why did they phrase it that way? Because we love the idea of something that is custom, something that is bespoke, something that is for you. I've got a Civic like 29 billion other people, but I've put three stickers on it to express just my little corner of myself. My church and a little inside family thing. That's it. We love custom. If you insist on customizing your life, you'll die in it. You can't customize. You have to come to Christ. Jesus said, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The question, and I'm through, is are you going to trust Jesus or yourself? That's it. If you're not entirely certain that you have eternal life, I'm going to invite you right now to do what Jesus said and repent. In other words, make a U-turn, turn around, stop trusting yourself and start trusting him. Jesus is like a lifeguard coming to a drowning man. Because I've known a few lifeguards, and it's a dangerous job. Not because they don't know how to swim, but because the panicked people they rescue are in such dire trouble that sometimes they endanger the lifeguard and would drown them both if the lifeguard isn't skilled and strong. Jesus is swimming up to you knowing that you're dying, saying, give up and come with me. Give me your hand, I'll get you to shore. And untold billions of people will hear the name of Jesus, hear a message like this, hear a better message than this, and keep on trusting themselves. 
So really, I'm giving you a great responsibility now before Jesus to decide what to do with him because I'm being as clear as I possibly can. I'll just repeat what Jesus and his apostle John said. You cannot have life apart from Christ. Your sins are too great. You cannot forgive yourself. You cannot remedy yourself. You cannot reform yourself. Yes, you can improve yourself, but not nearly enough to stand in front of a holy God who knows everything about you. What a silly project that ever was to think that we could morally impress a holy God. No, that's why God sent His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have instead eternal, everlasting life that begins now and carries on forever. So I just want to give you a moment before we conclude this service to decide what you'll do with Jesus. I'm going to invite you to receive His good news because religion gives advice. I'm not giving you advice. I'm announcing good news. The good news is that Jesus came in your place, lived righteously, obeyed God in a way that you have not and could not, died in your place to trade lives with you, give you His holy, righteous life in place of your own with its sinfulness. He's exchanged lives with you so that you can be welcomed into the family of God as one of God's kids, as loved and accepted and righteous as Jesus Himself not to get you to try harder, not to get you to be smarter, but to surrender and give yourself to Jesus so that He may give you life. Humbly throwing yourselves into the arms of the lifeguard who's come to you and let Him rescue you and get you safely to the shore of the other side. How will you do that? Well, that's entirely up to you. I'm just going to give a little open space, what we seldom have in church, because there's so much talking and there's so much music. I'm just going to give you a moment of quiet so that you will surrender yourself to Jesus if you're not 100% sure that He has already saved you. If you have any doubt at all, and believe me, I believe my pastor was right, I think there will be surprises in heaven. And I don't want the surprising disappointment to know that people I knew and loved all my life didn't actually believe at all because they learned the language. They learned a Sunday morning routine of going to church. This happens. A pastor friend of mine pastored for several years before he actually became a Christian. It happens. Our nation, our culture is so shot through with the gospel message that the language is easy to learn, the words are easy to mouth, and in all of that, you can do all of that and not trust Jesus and be lost. So let's pray. I could I invite you to bow your head and just take a moment with the Lord to decide what to do? It's between trusting yourself and trusting Jesus. What are you going to do? There are no magic words. God can't be impressed with formulaic words. He can see a repentant heart. He saw me as a kid breaking, finally, my childish pride breaking before him and saying, Jesus, please save me. He'll do the same for you. 
Could I just ask you to tell him in your own words that you're sorry for your sin? That you're tired of working on it? That you're giving up on yourself and you're turning yourself over to him? Maybe you want to say like someone did when Jesus was on earth, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus, I've sinned. You can save me. Please make your death and your resurrection count for me. I believe you. I believe you said the truth when you said I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Take me into the family. Make God my Father. If you did that just now, could I just ask you for one bit of feedback? I'm not going to ask you to stand up, say anything. If you prayed to make your peace with God this morning, could I just ask you to raise your hand, put it right back down? Praise the Lord. Several people. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for loving us the way you have. I pray for these who have raised their hand and for those who didn't, but those who between just you and them, they move their trust from themselves over to you. Thank you. We love you. Thank you for saving souls this morning. I pray that you would do it again in the next service. I pray this in Jesus' name, and Crosspoint said, now wait a second, because I did things a little differently. Not quite done. I know it's going to be a letdown. I felt the letdown. Did you feel it? Like, why did he put his, oh, no. <laughs> I've been in the pew, folks. I, I understand both sides of this deal, right? Spent just about as much time in a pew as I have in a pulpit. Those of you who raised your hand, do me one favor. Find the bulletin, fill out a card, let us know today what you've done. It's not necessary to complete your salvation. If you did business with God, God knows and God sees. We just want to know. We want to know that you've moved from death to life because those who are in the family of God should be, have a very particular way of thinking about those in the unbelieving chair. First of all, we should be grateful to God because we were once in it. When we say that everybody's invited to the table, everybody starts in unbelief. No one starts believing in Jesus. Everyone starts believing in themselves. By God's mercy and grace, many come to an end of themselves and start trusting Jesus, and that's when life begins. Secondly, we should be committed to telling people the good news of Jesus. If you know him, you should talk about him. It's absurd how many things I love I talk about instead of talking about Jesus much more than I do. I mentioned hot sauce a couple weeks ago, and I was fairly flooded with requests, what's the hot sauce? <laughs> I love to talk about things that I enjoy. The person I enjoy and love most in this universe is Jesus, my Savior. He gave me life and every other earthly blessing I've ever enjoyed, including my wife and children. We should be committed to telling people that good news, and we should celebrate every time someone is born into the family of God. If this morning you have moved from death into life, congratulations, praise the Lord, we're excited for you. And that's just a little bit 
Because Jesus said that there is joy in the presence of the angels when a sinner turns around and comes home. This is the beginning of the table, the unbelieving cheer. For those of you who trusted Christ this morning, whether you raised your hand or not, maybe you still have questions. Maybe you're like me as a kid and you're fighting through doubts and questions. Whatever your situation is, please fill that card out. Leave it with the ushers or in a box on the way out. Next week, we're going to keep moving around the table and talk about the first and the most exciting part of life in the family of God, that of the baby Christian. Father, dismiss us with your grace. We love you. Thank you, Lord, for those who have trusted you. Give them, Lord, a moment more to stop by the hello table, to drop their card off with the usher, to leave it with the pastor, to let us know, God, the momentous, extraordinary, life-changing work that you have done for them this morning because they trusted your Son, Jesus Christ. I thank you for these things, and I praise you, Jesus, for being our Savior. And Crosspoint said... If you're new, don't be a stranger. Stop by the hello table. Let us know that you're here. We have a gift for you. God bless you. Love you. See you soon.